Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It is the smallest creature in the world, a virus, the invisible enemy. Is man to be defeated by something he cannot even see? Are we winning or losing? Hello and welcome to the Tortoise Podcast. I'm James Harding and I'm joined here by Basha Cummings, fellow editor at Tortoise. Well, I say that I'm joined. Actually, she's sitting in a cupboard at home and I'm sitting <laughs> uh, at my desk. And we're trying to make sense of the world while also figuring out new ways of working if you're a listener to the Tortoise Podcast, you'll know what we're about. It's an attempt to do slow news, to understand what's driving the news, to get a better grip on where things are headed, rather than just do updates and breaking news. And this week, what we're trying to understand is how pandemics end. Now, of course, you might say that this is a classic journalistic disease, that our instinct is to try and find answers to questions that are, by their definition right now, unanswerable. That, in fact... We want to try and get to the end of the story before it's really even begun. Some of us are only a matter of days, some perhaps even hours, getting used to self-isolating or working from home. But the reality, it is on all of our minds. It is the way we're going to sustain hope, trying to get some sense of how a pandemic, how coronavirus, COVID-19 is going to be remedied, is going to be accommodated, is perhaps going to be vaccinated. And so in the course of the next half an hour, what we're hoping to do is understand how pandemics, certainly those of the past, have ended. And Basha, maybe that's the best place to start. Are there any good stories? Is there any good news from history? Well, yes. And, and helpfully, what we can see is that in the end, in the battle between human beings and pandemics, generally humanity wins. And so far we have. So if we look at Black Death, uh, smallpox, cholera, Spanish flu, a whole bunch of terrifying diseases, in the end, we've, we've come through. It hasn't been pleasant and many, many people have died. But let's start here. That This is a moment to savour. I'm here to tell you that there's good news tonight. Smallpox is dead everywhere in the world. The natural thing is to say, how can they possibly know about the darkest jungles of Brazil, the wastes of Africa, the far reaches of the Soviet Union? Well, they do know, thanks to an organization that most people know very little about. And yet it is one of, if not the, most splendid thing to come out of the United Nations, namely its World Health Organization, WHO. 
So if we start with smallpox, the symptoms of smallpox were similar to other viral diseases, a fever, muscle pain, headache, fatigue. Then a rash would start and would spread rapidly across the body, attacking skin cells. And the numbers are staggering. It's thought to have killed 56 million people since the year 1520. So that makes it the second deadliest disease in history after the bubonic plague. But but the reason that it's it's a good place to start is it's actually one of the only two diseases in history that we've managed to totally eradicate. That's a that's huge. And it was a man called Edward Jenner who discovered in 1798 that vaccination could prevent smallpox and that was the first ever vaccine in fact. So by 1980 and that was sort of two decades after the World Health Organization really began to try and stamp it out, the disease was totally vanquished. So we could sort of say humanity won, virus nil, sort of. <laughs> but but Bachelor, the one thing to say there, or maybe two things to say there, are that it's really shocking to me as you were looking into this, that actually there are only two diseases in history that we've managed to totally eradicate. That that actually it's an incredible rarity more often than not we have to live with them and the other thing is if we just pause and reflect on the fact that jenna discovers a vaccination in 1798 and it's 202 years later that the world is able to stand up and say this disease has been eradicated i mean going after very very small things turns out to be a very big and difficult job and let's and let's see by the way if there's a, a way that we can take what we've learned in terms of smallpox, but other diseases, other pandemics, epidemics, and get a sense of how this might translate to COVID-19. It, it was declared, I think, in early March to be a pandemic by the WHO, the World Health Organization. So we now know we've got a truly global outbreak. In fact, you can see it literally everywhere. But of course, the truth is it's not actually the only pandemic that the world is dealing with now. There's another pandemic, the one that's been going on for nearly 40 years, and it came to all of our attention, and I remember it incredibly clearly, from the 1980s. Take a listen to this. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease, and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it. So far, it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself. We are in the midst of a long-standing uh, pandemic, which is HIV. That's Dean and Pillay. He's a professor of virology at University College London. There are currently something in the order of 36 million people infected with this virus, and there's no indication that that's coming to an end. Can you explain briefly, um, from a scientific standpoint, uh, why HIV is still with us? Once infected with HIV, there's pretty much no evidence other than a couple of well-documented cases, but there's pretty much no other evidence that you can clear this from the body. In other words, once infected, you're infected for life. That was Professor Dinan Pillay talking to my colleague Giles Wittell. And Giles is with us now. Hi, Giles. So 
why in a podcast about how pandemics end have we actually started with one that is still ongoing? Well there are a few reasons really. Uh, The first is that I think HIV is a useful reminder that we are living with pandemics. It may be a scary word but HIV in particular we've been living with for, for nearly 40 years. The second is that HIV is an example of a pandemic that hasn't actually ended and as a species We have to learn sometimes, and we have learned, to coexist with pandemics. And and thirdly, I think it's a useful parallel uh, for many reasons with COVID-19, not least that for many of us, uh, HIV was the first pandemic that came right to our doors, and COVID-19 is the first since then to have done the same thing, to have affected us so intimately. And there are useful parallels or, or lessons to be learned from HIV for this current pandemic. Isn't that right? Yes, it's true. In sort of uh, cellular biology terms, the two viruses are very different. Don't get me started because we won't go very far. I'm not a cellular biologist. But perhaps the most interesting and useful lesson to be drawn is not actually clinical, but sociological. Their similarities in terms of the very initial responses for which HIV was that initial response lasted a long time, but nevertheless. And it's one of stigma. And some of the language that we're hearing at the moment, for instance, even this week, Donald Trump is talking about the Chinese virus. I would like to begin by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. We'll be invoking the Defense Production Act just in case we need it. In other words, I think you all know what it is. And uh, in the early days of HIV, of course, it was the gay disease. And so there's no doubt that politics and society sort of biases can really impact almost always in a negative way on how we understand and therefore how we respond to these viruses. That was Dean and Pillay. And uh, if you were around in the 80s, actually, it is a really useful reminder of how fear worked. Uh, I remember back then there were those discussions about was it safe to travel on public transport? People were incredibly worried about the nature of infection. First, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. Uh, I suppose the thing that's really different though, Giles, and, I, uh, and, and doesn't bear comparison, is the speed of um, infection and the nature of that contagious fear. You know, pandemics don't usually last 30 years, do they? It's not that kind of long extended threat. It's something that's much more intense and often, to be blunt, much more deadly. So if you go back to the Black Death, that lasted seven years. You don't think, do we, that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to take the same shape as HIV in terms of time? It's not going to be something that we're stuck with for decades, right? So how how do we draw a lesson from HIV in understanding how, in a shorter time frame, this might be 
either eradicated or dealt with? Well, I think the first lesson is that we don't actually know. What really struck me from talking to Professor Pillay is that, like all academics, experts, right at the forefront of their field, he's very humble about the extent of our knowledge. And the the key thing to remember is we've only been living with COVID-19 for a few months. We don't know. We might be having to find an accommodation with this virus for decades rather than months or or just a few years. But he uh, divided the ways that pandemics end into two broad categories. The first is immunisation slash vaccination. If uh, you're lucky enough to find a vaccine that works with no serious side effects and that can be distributed widely, that can stamp it out or at least immunise the the global population against the disease. Uh, But as you pointed out, that took hundreds of years with smallpox. Generally, the creation of a vaccine is a matter of a decade or two, not a year or two. So we may be looking at the other broad way uh, pandemics end, which is trickle-off, which I don't think is a scientific term, but it is one that's widely used. And what, what does it say to get Giles? Trickle off. The, 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 the impact of a, of, a, of a virus naturally diminishes. But rather than hear it from me, perhaps we should hear it from Professor Pillay. I think that there's two ways in which pandemics come, come to an end. One is through the population becoming immune to uh, those pathogens. And once that happens, then these pathogens, these infections have nowhere to go and will die out. Influenza is an interesting case because, of course, it's always, its genetics is always changing and therefore there are new waves infection as time goes on. But clearly for any one specific infection, such as the Spanish flu in, in 1918, that, you know, pretty much burnt out because of immunity that developed in the population. All right, well, let's just go back just to your point about trickle-off. So what you're saying is that either it's pouring with rain and we can get people inside, or we sell people an umbrella, i.e. they can only get one umbrella each, and once everyone's got an umbrella, they can't get another umbrella. So to an extent, the, the idea is that the more people who get infected and can stand out in the rain with an umbrella... The better off we are. We put the we put the rain, we put the virus out of business. Is that is that the, your expectation that that that's actually more likely the way this ends? Is that there is such a spread of this virus in the human population that its risks to people and its risks to healthcare systems diminish significantly over time? Yes, part of it is arithmetic. Um, the more people who've got it, who've been infected the fewer, the, rem- the, the smaller the remaining pool of people to be infected. I love your analogy. In fact, a more widely used analogy is precisely the reverse. Instead of rain and umbrellas, it's forest fires and fuel, right? right? We're at the stage of a raging brush fire and, and, and a term that Professor Pillay is, and, and, and we are the fuel. 
we are an abundance of fuel for this raging, raging brush fire at the moment. When it's burnt through it, the fire naturally, eventually subsides. The, the, the medical term that Professor Pillay used often was naivety. We are a naive population as far as this virus is concerned. We are at its mercy in, in a sense, but by the same token. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Once it's burn through enough of us, it, it burns out. And historically, we know that that process can be accelerated by mutation of the virus. It can mutate to become even more virulent or less. If even more, then the effect is not necessarily as scary as it seems, because a virus that immobilizes or kills its hosts necessarily is less infectious. A dead person or an immobilised person is probably going to infect fewer people than someone moving around at the moment, for example, with COVID-19 and not even knowing about it. But Basha and Charles, this is probably unfair. In fact, it's definitely unfair because we're trying to get to the answers to questions that at the moment seem to have no answers. But one of the central ones around this idea of immunity, around this idea whether you call it trickle-off or we're trees and the virus burns out of trees... Is, is this mutation issue. So I don't entirely understand. If, if the, the underlying assumption that seems to me that if you get the illness, you then are more likely to be immune to it and future mutations of it. Is that right? Yes, that is our experience so far. Infection with measles, for example, confers total immunity for life, as far as we know. Our previous experience with corona-like viruses is that infection with them also confers at least some immunity so that uh, a sub subsequent infection might not be so severe or even noticeable. But it's really important to recognise that we don't know yet whether COVID-19 infection confers immunity. Professor Pile's view was that it probably does, but we don't know. And uh, it, it would be wrong to plan ahead entirely on the basis that, that we do. 
So, Basha, does that make you think you're in the right place in your cupboard? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. But it also makes me sort of think about just how confused particularly our government's response has been to coronavirus because a few days ago we we were operating on the on the on the understanding and at least that's what we understood from our government that that many of us were going to have to get the virus in order to to develop a herd immunity and and now it feels like actually the picture is very different and and it might not be clear that we could get it uh, in that way that's right. Well, we've got these two routes, as you say, Giles. There's the vaccination immunisation route, and there is the mass immunity route, the trickle-off option. Obviously, there are huge uncertainties that we just don't know how long it'll take to get a vaccine and then to be able to deploy it across the global population. And as you say, we also don't know whether or not when you're infected with this illness, whether or not that will give you uh, an immunity and and stop its spread. So, So what's the so what's the lesson, what's the process, what's the next step that uh, scientists, immunologists draw from that? Where where at least can we draw some uh, optimism or at least future thinking from here? Well, the next step is to look very carefully at the data. And although we haven't been living with this virus for very long, the data is emerging in vast volumes, principally from China. And I think it's worth listening to Professor Pile on this. The really key thing is data from um, human exposure, which we're all having now and and from first principles and looking at other similar viruses, I expect that um, there will be protection, at least in the short term, whether it, uh, uh, it may very well not be lifelong protection once you've been infected, but certainly short term protection, I'm hoping we will see. And roughly how long do we have to wait looking at that Chinese data? The The real question here is, in instances of continuing circulating virus, do people who've had 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 uh, confirmed infection to start with, do they actually get infection again? There, there have actually been a couple of case reports uh, published, which give evidence that of individuals who've become infected, then got well, and then become infected again. I, I would just say we should treat this with caution, because. In biology and medicine, there are always uh, outliers. There's always exceptions to the rule. And of course, those are going to be published before other things. And so, so far, I'm still, I'm still hopeful that the data will show some sort of protection. So, so Giles, what, what about a vaccine then? We immunised against smallpox. We've almost defeated polio. Is there a chance that we could beat this with a vaccine? There are many, possibly dozens of pharmaceutical companies working on this. We read reports all the time about the race for a vaccine. It is happening. It wouldn't be happening if all the players didn't think there was a realistic possibility of coming up with a vaccine. I think what's interesting, and what was interesting talking to Professor Pile, is that since SARS and the other major epidemics of the first decade of, of, the, of this century, this field of medical science has come on substantially, really fast, so that now we have research not only in traditional vaccines, which involve the use of dead or attenuated viruses being injected into live uh, animal and then human subjects to, to develop antibodies, which then become the vaccine. There is now an alternative 
genetic approach involving the use of what's called messenger RNA, which as I understand it, forgive me, like all of us, I'm, I'm a generalist, it, it, it takes a piece of the virus's own genetic code and then in a lab synthesizes a, a particular part of it that is required to prompt the right immunological response when injected back into the body. But what's injected back in is synthetic. It's not a part of the virus itself. It's been created on the basis of the virus's genetic code. And that's why they've been able this week to start human clinical trials in Seattle very quickly, 66 days, I think, after they first got the the genome of the virus sequenced without going through the traditional preliminary phase of, of animal trials. And I, and I suppose, Charles, I'm trying to reach, or we're trying to reach the answer, as I said at the beginning, to an unanswerable question. But if it's the case that vaccination, there's a level of science and a level of distribution that is at this stage quite unknowable, but probably long term, and there's the trickle off immunity effect that as yet remains unclear, maybe we should go back to the original starting point here, which was the HIV case and say, look, in HIV's history, what actually happened was we started off by trying to limit the spread. We then try to mitigate the symptoms and the effects on people. And only slowly did we work on interventions which were going to disrupt the illness. And that actually having that kind of time frame and that kind of approach might be more realistic, i.e. we're not really talking about ending a pandemic, we're talking about living with it. I think that has to be the working assumption. Um, Professor Pillay was absolutely in agreement with government policy on the overwhelming importance right now of changing the way we behave. Not just because it's all we've got, but be, but because it may be all we ever have. We, we, we may not uh, have a vaccine that works. So social distancing, self-isolation, etc. I think this is a big stress. I think it's a, for many people to actually isolate themselves. And uh, we will start to see, I think, uh, some psychological symptoms, psychological disease starting to come up as people both uh, recognise what's needed, the difficulty of that, but also get worried by by that. And I think, and I think this reflects the fact that we now recognise this has to be done. And it may be that there would be, and this is me just predicting where things uh, uh, happen, it may be easier to provide some sort of timeline to this, which will in- ensure that these this guidance is adhered to sufficiently with people knowing that there will be a time that things will be relaxed before, of course, having to reintroduce this. And and the place to look, look at um, in this respect is China, in fact, so, Jazz, I guess the million-dollar question here is, how does he think this is going to play out? Well, I asked him that, and it's probably best to let him speak for himself. My sense is that there will be a large number of people infected, but that the proportion of those individuals who may become severely ill may diminish over time. I would have thought by this time next year, we may have 
a vaccine. Uh, at the same time, of course, as a, a larger number of people have been infected and therefore the force of infection will reduce. So I think because of those reasons, uh, I'm hopeful that we're, we're, w- this will sort of burn out. Finally, on this one, on a scale of one to 10, where one is relaxed and 10 is it's like the sort of third act of a Hollywood contagion movie, how worried are you? I would put it at eight. Goodness. Thank you. Well, um, thanks very much. That's uh, uh, rather more <laughs> severe than I was expecting from your generally calm uh, response. That was Professor Dean and Pillay. As you say, Charles, there's something particularly chilling and unsettling when calm people respond to one out of 10 questions uh, and put their concerns uh, at the top end of the scale. And I suppose that's what is so difficult about an exponential threat like this, that it's unseeable one day and it's insuperable in a matter of days after that. And the growth of it is, is, is huge. Basha, I think the question that I keep coming back to is whether or not we instinctively reach for answers in the past for problems today that are fundamentally different, that they're fundamentally one of a kind, and whether or not when you started out looking at the history of other pandemics, whether you came away thinking we do have something to learn from our history or whether or not actually our past will set us down the wrong route and and potentially a dead end. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. It could be that over the centuries, people have always taken to their cupboards. Maybe I'm just, the, <laughs> the, you know, just the most current in a long line of people sitting in their cupboards. I mean, I, I, look, looking at past um, pandemics, it's clear that everyone is very different in different ways. And I think listening to Giles and, and Professor Dean and Pillay, it's clear that, you know, there are a lot of unknowables uh, this time around. And we have technology and we have medical innovation that is helping us fight this in a completely new way. But I think things like social distancing actually feel quite fundamental. They feel like the things that people were being told to do during the bubonic plague and during smallpox and during, you know, other scary sounding diseases, plagues. There was one in in the, the 1600s that sounded particularly terrifying. So it could be that there are there are parts of this which where we can look to history and we see that this is this is part of being human. This is part of being alive. There are always going to when we live in big societies, there are going to be these problems. And I'm sure this isn't going to be the last one. But it also seems like this time around, there are things that are, are very different. And we're going to have to fight it in a completely different way, too. And for those of you who've been sitting and listening and wondering to yourself, well, if there have been two diseases that have been eradicated, what's the other one? The answer is, and I'm probably going to get the pronunciation wrong, rinderpest. Uh, It was a viral disease and it afflicted uh, cattle, actually, much more than, or in fact, rather than humans. Um, But again, it's worth reflecting on the fact that we look for pandemics to end. We think we might be able to eradicate a disease. Actually, only two have been eradicated smallpox and a viral disease in cattle. So we're going to have to think much more about how we live with pandemics rather than how we finish them off. And 
I hope that in listening to the conversation that we've had, drawing on the expertise of uh, Professor Demon Pillay, but also the research that you've done, Basher, and you, Giles, that, that we as a newsroom and you, our members at Tortoise, who are listening to the slow podcast, slow news podcast that we're recording, get a better sense of where this is going. Um, that's been our aim today. I hope that it's been useful. Do feel free. We're an open newsroom. We're trying to make sure that we draw on the expertise and the uh, experience of people in all walks of life to get in touch with us. And if you're not a member of Tortoise and you are interested in what we're trying to do, please go to our website, www.tortoisemedia.com, so that you can uh, certainly see the journalism that we're doing and better still sign up and become a member. Um, We all need uh, as many sources of information as possible. And our principle is that everyone who becomes a member is genuinely a member of our newsroom and informs the way we understand the world. Um, With that, uh, Basher, I don't know what to advise you, really. Uh, get out of the cupboard, stay in the cupboard. <laughs> make sure you get. I think some, I'm going to stay a little while longer. Just stay a little while longer in the cupboard. <laughs> well, Bash Cummings will come back to you in the cupboard this time next week. Uh, Charles Wattell, thank you too, and thank you very much for listening. See you. Bye. Bye. I think I might be running out of oxygen. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.